Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. Today we're going to be doing something a little different and I'm really excited to get into it. We're going to be going over a case study and I'll let the gentleman explain that. Good morning, guys. How are you? Morning, Eric. Good morning, Eric. All right. So we're going over a case study, correct? Who's who's taking charge here? Yeah, I am. I'm going to start it off today. Michael's going to chime in along the way because he's the planning specialist. Fantastic. And the uh, gentleman or the person that uh, finds the relationships and develops them. All right. So what, what is the reason for going over a case study, John? What's the main purpose of this? I think the reason why we like to approach it this way is that when someone hears uh, things that we do or little snippets of what we do, they, they don't know where it belongs or the, or the context of it. So mm-hmm. I think a case study helps from soup to nuts, how we met the client, the things we discussed, the questions we asked, the development of the case, how we dealt with the children, how we dealt with the in-laws potentially or mm-hmm. upline generationally. And all those pieces start to, start to come together. So you see a plan develop, hopefully over the next 20 minutes or 25 minutes, that at the end you're going to say, I see what these guys have done for this family. And that's really what our objective yeah, is. Yeah, I think to, to add to that, if you listen to some of our prior podcasts where we're really talking and have been talking more about specific topics that we go through with families and planning. And on their own, that's great. But I think what we try to do is to look at all of those topics and plus some of the ones that we haven't even covered yet in, in their entirety and how we work with the family to touch on all of those. So we thought that these case studies would be a good way to, to again, to show what we can do and how we look at a family on all these different issues from start to finish. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I mean, it's easy to take a single puzzle piece and describe the way it looks and its shape and kind of how it may interact with the other pieces. But this is going to be the full picture, how all the pieces fit together and really give us a clear picture. So I, I'm, I'm excited. Where do we start? Yeah, it's it's also, it's connecting all, I refer to the nine dots. I don't know how I came up with nine dots, but we connect all these benefits along the way so that the client stays on track and they have the end game in mind. And I call it the bulging effect. It sounds kind of silly, but I use a circle when I show a client. Imagine drawing a circle on a board and on that circle from 12 o'clock going through all the hours, events in your life occur, like you did your estate planning, you mm-hmm. invested your portfolios, you bought life insurance, whatever it might have been. All those follow on that circle. Where the issue occurs with us is something called the bulging effect. If those decisions are made incorrectly, it forms a bulge on the other side. Mm. We control that to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks and the client gets where they need to go with the plan. All right. Well, let's get started then. This case is a private health family that we work with. It's a third generation. I was introduced to this gentleman from another advisor who realized that he needed the help that Copper Beach can deliver. He wasn't capable to deal with the family office type structure. So I met with this client at an actually cocktail party fundraiser, and he's a really, really super nice guy. And I spent the first 15, 20 minutes just getting to know him a little bit. And I started to ask him some key questions about his business, about his family, generally about how he operates. And I asked him about 15, 20 questions, and he didn't have an answer to any of them. Mm -hmm. So he started to get real concerned with that conversation that the things he had in place needed to be looked at. So he deliberately said, okay, let's move forward. I like you. 
think this is a good decision. Let's meet. And both Michael and I met with him the following week and started our process. All right. The first meeting was interesting. We take the first approach where we go back to those questions and start fine-tuning them. And I sensed from him from that conversation I had with him previously that he has some key areas of concern like his business succession. I asked him if he died tomorrow, what would happen to his company? And I got this very blank stare. Mm -hmm. So Michael and I started there to discuss the business succession philosophies, concepts, opportunities, third-party stories, how other families you work with handle some of his concerns. And it was a, it was a good one-two punch walking him through that. But through that process, I asked him probably 15 or 20 more questions, and he didn't have the answers to those either. So we started to get really deep into a discovery of the world of business succession, and he got very excited about some of the ideas we brought to the table. And Mike, do you want to jump in on some of those designs? As my dad said, this business was a third-generation family-owned business. So the the business owner that we that my father initially met uh, was third generation. He inherited this business from his father. His father at this time had passed away probably, I think, seven to eight years prior to that. So he had been running the company. He was involved in the company uh, while his father was alive. And so they actually had a, a pretty good succession plan, at least in place in terms of from his father to him. But now his children were younger. He had he has three children. They were at the time uh, probably early teenagers at that time. So they weren't really necessarily prepared or even really thinking about whether they would want to be in the family business. And so he had a concern about that because, again, third generation business, he wanted to keep the family name within the community. It was a, a pretty prominent family that had been there for, I think, over 100 years, right? That I think yes. they, they had been in that in that area of southern New Jersey. So he was very, very uh, keen on keeping that that business alive. But again, his kids were young weren't really sure whether they were going to get involved in that in the family business as of yet. So that was really focusing a lot of our initial time. Now, he wanted us to meet with his mother. His mother was still alive. And through his father's estate plan, she was now really, other than the business, was really in charge of most of the family's wealth through his father's estate plan. So he wanted us to meet with her. And we had another follow-up meeting with both the son and the mother. And the mother had a whole host of other issues as well. And we ended up going through our audit process with her, which was on our one of our earlier podcasts. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that and what our audit process entails, there's a whole podcast specifically on that. Through that process, and we audited her plan that she had in place. And she had quite a few concerns and holes that we uncovered through that plan. And the biggest one at that time was the family's estate tax exposure. So there was, I believe at that time, probably... I think around a $2 million estate tax exposure were she to pass away. Mm. So she was in her early 70s. So she wasn't certainly really, really old, I guess you could say, but she was, you know, no spring chicken, as they say. So that was a big concern. The family was not aware that they really had that estate tax exposure. They had a pretty decent estate plan, estate documents that were put in place again when his father wasn't alive. But this estate tax was still due. So that was a big concern of theirs. And we can obviously get into some more detail on how we dealt with that. But that was a, a big issue. The other issue that we uncovered was a desire for philanthropy. Again, the family has been in this area of New Jersey for over 100 years. They're a very prominent family. And they wanted to give back and had been talking about either developing some sort of foundation or some charitable entity or cause within southern New Jersey. 
And that was a big issue that they had touched on as well. We'll tie that back into the estate tax issue in a couple minutes. And then they also had an issue with regard to a trust that was put in place. This is called a qualified personal residence trust. It's called a, a mm. QPERT. Remember that, Eric? Oh, yeah. There's lots of letters. Remember lots one of, of those letters. acronyms? You may have mentioned that on a prior podcast. Yep. <laughs> I was testing you, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> this is a trust that is designed for asset protection and estate tax reduction planning. And what it does is a family can take their personal residence, typically it's spouses. They take their personal residence and they contribute that to this trust. And that trust lasts for a period of time, let's say 10 years, as an example. And during that 10-year period, the spouses are able to live in the house, same as normally as they usually have been. And after that 10-year period is over, the, the house goes to typically, it's designed to go to the kids. It can be held in trust for the kids. It can go out outright uh, to the kids. But once that happens, assuming you go and live past that 10-year period of time, if mom and dad are still living in that house, technically they no longer own it anymore. Because remember, the trust is expired. Mm -hmm. It's now in the ownership of the kids. And if they are living in that house that's not owned by them, there's an estate tax issue that, or a state uh, issue in the sense that that asset can be pulled back into their estate for tax purposes okay. and for asset protection purposes. So we uncovered that because this trust had expired. The, the, the son and his sister actually owned this house. They didn't know that they owned this house, which was kind of an interesting conversation. They, <laughs> they yeah. all of a sudden owned an asset that they didn't know that they technically owned. But we found out that mom was not paying rent to her children to continue to live in that house. Now, that was a fun conversation. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so, so that was uh, so. Th those were really, I think, the three issues that we major issues that we uncovered. I, that I don't know if, if I'm. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to bounce something. back to the. Yeah, I'm going to bounce back to the charitable side. We were talking to Anne Marie, lovely lady, and one of the things we started to dive into was how much that was a focus of the families, and she spent about ten or fifteen minutes talking about that was her husband's greatest wish to create a foundation. In the middle of it, she started to cry. Yeah. I asked her why she was crying. She goes, no one's ever really addressed this with us. And I really want to try to get it accomplished. And I hope you guys can help us do that. So she was very, very focused on getting that foundation in place. And it was a very rewarding process to take her through. To this day, it's funded every year. And it's one of the neatest times of our year is funding that trust with assets as time goes on. It's, it's interesting case. That's a whole different need that you're fulfilling than a financial future or a retirement that so many people focus on. That's a whole nother ball game when you can fulfill that kind of need. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you really get involved with these families, you really get to the heart of the matter. And that was her heart because that was her husband's heart. Mm -hmm. But no one really addressed it. I mean, time, years went by and no one really brought it up. No one really discussed it until we asked the question. And she said, I'm all in. Now, what drove this in part, and this is really gets to the Michael's design, with this case is that she had a very, very large IRA. And that's really where the tax issue hides in a lot of these larger estates. They have a lot of qualified assets, which if you understand how they operate, if you have an estate tax exposure, you could have a huge tax on that qualified asset. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. If you had a million dollar portfolio in an IRA and you would die with it, leave it to your kids. And that was this case. The kids are subject to about a 70% tax exposure on that transfer. Wow. Remember, there was an estate tax of 55% at the time, and there's never been an income tax paid on that IRA. 
when it passes to the kids, they have to pay income tax as well as estate tax. So you can see it's a great asset when you're living. It's not a very good asset when you pass away with mm -hmm. it. So a lot of our clients get very surprised when they have these larger uh, portfolios and IRAs and doctors fall in that suit. The folks with high net worth fall in that suit. They have these large portfolios because they did it for tax reasons. They want to put money away for their retirement. But again, if they die with those assets, it could potentially cause this major tax to the kids. So it's a very much of a focus on her. So I want to eliminate that tax, figure out a way to do it. And that's where this charitable design came into play. Not only did we handle her wish to put a foundation in place, it gave her the deductions where we saved the family about two two point two million mm -hmm. in estate tax doing this design. And her smile, she goes, "I'd rather give them my kids than the guys in Washington." And she started to smile, but it's an interesting, fun conversation we have. But she was elated that we shifted the assets to the family versus wasting it in tax to the government, because most folks don't know that the estate tax is a voluntary position. There are very unique planning techniques to avoid it completely. And this is one of them. Wow. Yeah, no, that's that's great if it's voluntary. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to opt out yeah. now. <laughs> well, it's voluntary if you want to do planning to avoid it mm -hmm. uh, and to get it down to zero. And I think we may have mentioned this on a prior podcast, the five levels of estate planning. And typically many families that we come across, again, during that audit process have really only done what we consider the first two levels of estate planning, which is really they maybe have a basic will or a trust or they maybe have done some some life insurance planning to help fund the tax, but there are a lot of other advanced estate planning techniques that they can go through in order to get that tax down to zero if that's something that they want, and philanthropic planning is a great way to, to accomplish that. Mike, this might be a good opportunity since you mentioned the life insurance in your conversation a couple seconds ago. That was a key design idea in, in your case design. You want to walk through how that worked together with the charitable side of it and with the tax side? Sure. No, I think that that's a great point, Dad. When we go through these designs, especially in the philanthropic side of these five levels of estate plan that I alluded to a few minutes ago, the challenge, and most families, when we talk with them about planning or who, let's say, who, who you can leave your assets to, as an example, there's really three major parties that you could leave your assets to. One is your family or other individuals that you may have. The second is the government in the form of taxes, that estate tax that we talked about, or some inheritance tax. And the third is charities, philanthropy. Sometimes we will ask families when we first meet them, in term, and we're designing their estate plan, if you had to prioritize those three parties, what order would you put them in? And most of the time, almost I would say 90%, almost 100% of the time, families say, I want to leave it to my family first, and then charity second, and last is the government, the third rank if you will. Mm -hmm. But the challenge when you're leaving assets to charity is it takes away from the family. That's great. I'd rather leave it to a charity or to a cause that I feel passionate about than to leave it to uh, the government and have them decide where that money or how that money is, is spent. But my family's going to lose out on that too. So we had that same conversation with this particular family and they were concerned about that as well. One way, one common technique that families will look at to get around that is they say, okay, I'm going to leave X number of dollars or X number of assets to charity. I want to be able to replace those assets for my family. And that's really where life insurance can play a pretty key role. So in this particular design, the mom said, okay, I'm going to leave this asset to our new family foundation that we helped them create along with their other advisors. And I want to, at the same time, take excess cash flow that I have 
And by the way, we didn't really touch on the cash flow modeling that we had done with them, which was also a part of our audit. And we continue to do that with them annually, at least annually. But we knew that we had some excess assets that they could allocate towards the purchase of this life insurance contract, which was to equal the amount that was going to go to charity. So the family looked at them and they said, well, this is great. I'm creating this family foundation that we've always wanted to create. I am leaving these assets to that foundation. And I'm also not losing it to my family because we have this death benefit in this life insurance contract that is replacing that value that's also going to be in trust for my family, asset protected and out of their estate. And the government has been cut out almost entirely by this transaction. So the family really, really liked that, that type of design. And that impact, if you look at the swing, it was like a $4 million swing to the family from a net worth standpoint. So she got real excited about that. Obviously, the kids got real excited about it because their fear was that this was going to go in taxes and they weren't sure if they can avoid it or have a plan to reduce it to a certain level. But we eliminated completely with a replacement using the insurance design. It was a very dynamic conversation. Everybody was excited about it and everything moved forward from there. You had spoken about a cash flow analysis that you do. Can you explain Mm -hmm. that a little bit more? Well, that's part of our audit process as well. It's one of the components of our audit is we'll look at a family's cash flow and we'll model various scenarios. So as an example, if you were maybe a younger family and we were going through that process, we would analyze, okay, what would happen to the family's cash flow if one of the spouses were to pass away, as Mm -hmm. an example? Would the family be able to maintain that level of cash flow? You'll see that a lot in families where there's maybe one income earner, one major income earner that's quote unquote the breadwinner of the family. Well, if that spouse were to pass away, that's really going to change the family's cash flow dynamics. So that's one scenario that that we would model. For this particular case, this was a lady in her 70s. So she was a widow. She didn't have those same sort of concerns. However, she did have a cash flow concern again when we were talking about can we have enough cash flow to do this type of design, this wealth replacement design? Also, the charity design. If she's going to be giving away assets to charity, well, those are assets that she's no longer going to have to supplement her lifestyle. So mm-hmm. we had to go through that cash flow analysis to make sure that, okay, based on these projections that we're going to incorporate, that she's okay, that the family's okay, and that the community is okay as well. Yeah, and part of the design, again, we can get to the weeds on the design as much as we need to, but the impact that this, this had from tax-wise, when you make a charitable contribution, you get an income tax deduction. Mm-hmm. So when she did that, it was a large sum of money. She got a five-year deduction spread over five years would offset her taxes. So that helped that cash flow model show her that the next five years she had enough not only to make gifts to the trust that held the insurance, but that was part of the equation which helped her understand how it all came together. That's it's a great point. Let me ask, we've talked a lot about different pieces of this or different pieces of the puzzle, as I spoke about earlier. How many different things do you think you guys helped them or, or different line items, if you will, did you help this family with in this case study? Uh, oh, geez. I- <laughs> a ton. It was it was connecting the generations. Mm-hmm. It was designing trusts that benefited the living and the passing of that living person to the next generation. It was cash flow analysis. It was generation skipping discussions. It was life insurance designs. It was qualified plan tax reductions. It was a charitable trust design. Can you want me to go on? Well, it, and then, it's really endless, which is why I said business, earlier, right? we connect the nine dots. As you see, there's more than nine dots here. But yeah. a lot of the families we work with, 
as I, I use the term in previous podcasts, they get stuck in the middle and they're stuck being responsible for all this, but you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. I'll go back to that favorite saying I said in those previous podcasts. So what we did was we opened up the gates for her to understand her options. The analysis was put in place to evaluate what she can do, what she can't do. So when she proceeded with the plan and implemented it, she was comfortable 100% of the time going forward with our recommendations. By the way, we didn't bring up, we worked with the attorney and the CPA and the CFO of the company in this planning. So we brought the whole team in and the attorney and CPA were on board with all the tax structures, all the trust designs. So the team came together and made it all work, which made her more comfortable that my attorney agrees with John and Michael, my CPA agrees with John and Michael, we're on a happy place right now, let's get it done. And that's really the major impact. So we threw the attorneys and the accountants in there for a brief second, but they were a huge part of this case along the way. Again, we collaborate as a key element to our family office structure. And you also worked with the business as well, right? From the Sun? Yes. That's where mm -hmm. the CFO came in. The CFO, yeah. Yep. And we haven't even really touched on, again, we work upline, downline generation. So a lot of the, what we've been talking about thus far is really working with mom's estate or mom's planning in mm -hmm. this case. But the son, again, was the was really the owner of the business. He was running this, this third generation business. We also went through a, a pretty detailed business succession design with him. Again, should something happen to him, what happens to the business? Mm -hmm. That was a key part of this overall family plan that, that we went through with him. We developed a, and I think I alluded to this on another podcast, we developed a, a phantom stock plan with his, some of his key executives so that if he were to pass away, these key executives would help his wife and his kids maintain this business in the event that his kids maybe wanted to step in someday, or if yeah. in the event that it was eventually sold, then the family would receive the full value for the company. I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but I would think that somebody in his position, being that he had just gone through a business succession within yes. the last 10 years or so, Big point. Mm -hmm. would think, okay, we got through that. I don't have to think about this for another 20 years. My kids are young, right? My kids, you, you said his kids were younger. I would yes. think that they wouldn't think so much about what they truly need in case of the quote unquote hit by a bus scenario. And so this is kind of a two-part thought or question to you guys. For the advisors, the attorneys, the CPAs that are listening to this podcast that are in their head right now identifying folks that they work with that are business owners that they know that they haven't done either a great job of a succession plan or any work on a succession plan, what would you tell them specifically on how they can broach this conversation or what steps they should be taking to help protect their client? It's critical. Every business owner has that same nightmare. They worry about their business every single day, three or six to five days a year. And it's like their fourth child. I think I brought that up in mm -hmm. the podcast as well. So they they really are hands-on. If something were to happen to that entity, to the family, it's devastating. So these advisors should approach their family businesses and say, what have you done to put this together? And if you need help, let's get started on it. We could bring in some people that can help you do that. I would say, Michael, tell me if I'm wrong, 95% of the clients who come across don't have a succession plan in place. Mm -hmm. That's correct. It's almost scary. They're almost afraid to address it because they don't have clarity on what they could do. And they, yeah. it's those options again. No one's really outlined the opportunities they have to transfer that business, whether it's sell to a third party, give it to the kids, or sell to an ESOP, 
or hold on to it and bring upper management levels and, and bring board of directors in to help the family run the business when they're no longer there. You go public. There's they, a lot of different, a lot of different ways. They want to understand what that all means. And again, when you don't have a coordinated team of advisors to help them do that, it's frustrating because again, they get stuck in the middle trying to figure it out themselves and they don't know where to go when they freeze yeah. until people like us come on and say, if something happened to your business, tell me your exit strategy. And they say, I don't have one or it needs to be looked at or I'm not really clear and all the other answers we get. And we start that almost 100% of the time with our families. You know, it's an interesting, uh, this just popped into my head that the one advisor in the family, especially in a family business or a privately held business that typically is other than us, that's the catalyst for really a business succession conversations are banks, the financing mm. companies. They're very concerned about that. If you have, let's say, a sole owner of a company and they're providing large amounts of financing, you better bet that they're going to ask what that business owner's succession plan is just in case something happens to them. Good point. And the business owners, we've had some families, not this particular family on this case study, but the uh, some other families have said, well, that really got me thinking about it because I never really thought about it that way. And my bank really kind of push the envelope on that. Now, the bank's not necessarily set up to really help them with that. That's what we do. And that's why they they reach out to us. It's really interesting when you talk about the advisors that unfortunately aren't having the, these conversations very often with the families that we work with. So we often become the catalyst of those uh, decisions. Hmm. Yeah. By the way, getting back to that banking issue, we have a couple of cases where there was a huge credit line out on the business owner where he borrows money to do his business. Now, imagine this, Eric, if you had a $5 million credit line because you had to grow your business mm -hmm. and you were to pass away, what happens to that credit line? Who pays it back? All right, so now you have a succession that says, is no one going to take over the business? What's the business really valued at? Yeah. Well, it's like a fire sale out there. So now you, you get families stuck in this bank saying, I want that note paid back. They have to sell an asset to do that. As, as you can see, it gets to be a real hit on the family yeah. net worth because things weren't planned properly. Yeah. We see it all the time. It'd be a nightmare. That would be an absolute it nightmare. Always is. Yeah. Hey, guys, we are running out of time. Do you have any closing thoughts for today's podcast? Yeah, I would say to your question, anybody that's listening to this podcast and is either a business owner or an advisor to a business owner, business succession is the most important step they can take to protect their families. That's their, usually their largest asset, and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, I would echo that. I think that uh, there's no better time to plan for your business. There's no better time to coordinate uh, intergenerationally with your family, especially if you're a privately held company. All of those dots, the nine dots that my dad mentioned at the beginning, those are all really important. They all need to be managed, and they're not all managed on a regular basis, you, you could have some exposures and pitfalls that can develop. So there's no better time than now. Yeah, I agree. And bankers, the ones that have relationships with small business owners or medium-sized business owners, your bosses will really like it if you make sure that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and there's a succession plan in place and they don't have to go through all the trouble of, of going after assets or whatever to get those loans paid back. So get on the ball give them a call and find out what they can do for you as far as Copper Beach. They're fantastic and they have lots of resources. Guys, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. You bet. Thanks again for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This will make it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends, family, and your colleagues. 
Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services, Incorporated, a member of FINRA SIPC Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors, Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of APFS and APA. Any opinions expressed in this forum are not the opinion or view of American Portfolios Financial Services Incorporated APFS or American Portfolios Advisors Incorporated APA and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors.